0: Where are these missing pages? This map, we must have these pages back.
1: This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. There's something that often happens in history. And this doesn't mean going, you know, ancient history or American history. It could mean anything from the history of a business, the history of music or art or anything. It's that we often focus on the winners at the detriment of the losers. And what I mean by this is that the winners that we know that make it to today, right? If we look at, say, uh, companies, right? If we look at, like, the dot com bubble, if you did not live during that time and, you know, actively trade or pay attention to the news, the tech news at the time, there are probably thousands of companies, maybe not thousands, but dozens to hundreds of companies that you have never heard of that people at the time we're thrilled about. Some of those get through uh, into history books and into, you know, the common lexicon like pets.com or things like that. But the ones that we hear most about are those that make it through. The Amazons, the Microsofts. Those are the ones that we see today and we say, oh, I wish I had bought stock back in 2001, Amazon stock. I would be a millionaire today. But you can't do that. Retroactively looking at stocks is just as stupid as retroactively looking at history and ignoring all of the losers and just looking at the winners. There's the quote that is often attributed to Winston Churchill, but likely has various different sources, that history is written by the victors and that is very true right we can see that at least in chauvinist history right imperialist history that is how it is written and it has been written that way for millennia right histories are written by those that conquer and the conquered are are completely removed from history it's not until very recent history writing that we start to look at the stories of those that are suppressed, which is why the the effort of those like Howard Zinn in his The People's History of the United States are admirable, despite the very strong problems with the sourcing of that book. Looking at history not through the lens of the power structures of 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 looking at it from, you know, the the king's logs, for instance, but looking at it from the ground, is it admirable practice? And what can happen a lot of the time, just to simplify history, is to only look at those that make it far into history, right? Make it closer to modern day. We look at Amazon because we can look at history from in 1980 and continue it all the way to today. For a lot of those dot-com bubble companies, their history ends in 2001 and started maybe in 1999. So it's hard to write a history about, say, Pets.com or something like that when they don't really have a long history. And that's what I've been trying to do in the first two episodes, is to give a background to the usual starting point of American history, which is where we are going to be going into this episode, Jamestown virginia i wanted to give a sense of all of the different attempts before jamestown which we did talk about i did say that they were mentioned in the ap history notes but at the time we have to remember that there was no 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 way of knowing that jamestown would be the one to to win right there was no way of knowing that amazon was going to make it through And it's possible that you could make the point that there are analysts that could look back at the data or analysts at the time that could say, "Okay, Amazon, they have a good they have a good debt ratio or uh, they have a lot of money on the books or whatever argument we want to make as a financial analyst. I am not one of those, so I do not know the best way to look at stocks. But at the time, in 1607, when Jamestown was founded, was settled, it was just one of many. It was one of a string of failures to get a permanent settlement north of Florida that goes back 50 plus years. And this one only succeeded basically due to persistence and a lot of luck. And it's entirely possible that, given a few slight changes, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings in Australia at a different second, that we are speaking Spanish, or speaking French, or Dutch, or speaking some other language, Algonquian, perhaps. That's unlikely, but not completely impossible. So when we look at my AP history notes, and I will get into exactly what they say in a second, the first thing I start to notice is almost the narrative formation of the, the story of America. And I understand it looking back as, as trying to teach history to a 16-year-old. I have younger brothers that are around that age. And trying to get to them to be interested in anything like history would be extremely difficult. So we have to build some sort of narrative structure, some sort of hook, right, to get them into it. But my hope is, and I don't know if I will succeed at this, and I'm hoping it will just get better and better as I as I do this. This is a learning process for me, just as it might be for you, learning about the history. I'm learning about the history and how to talk about it, how to podcast all of those things. My hope is that I can break through those narratives and try to take out the, the, you know, the, the string that is pulling us to today, right? I don't want it to be me forcing a narrative into the people at the time to bring them to today. They did not think about 2023. They were thinking about 1607. They were thinking about May 12th, 1607, surviving that day and making it through to the next. And there were some that were thinking of the future. We talked about Richard Hackwhite. He wanted to turn Virginia into a manufacturing hub and a a secondary state under the English empire. And if we look at for instance Virginia as say Amazon, we will see many small excursions outside of Amazon, many attempts to break free slightly, just just ever so slightly from that ecosystem going to pets.com, trying to do it yourself and being caught up in the bubble bursting, and not just losing money, but losing your life. So the AP U.S. History Notes starts with a document analysis of a primary document written by Richard Hacklite, who we talked about last episode, but it gives a sense of the ideas that he proposes in building a colony in the New World. And it asks us to read this document and summarize it, give a sense of what Hacklight was saying, and, you know, decide what you find the most compelling and what you find the most problematic. And then we get to Jamestown, Virginia. And one of the things that anybody that took this class with me, specifically with this teacher, knows this as a fact. If I were to say the words Jamestown, Virginia, they would say, 1607. So we had a lot of what he called benchmark dates. So we had a lot of dates that we needed to remember basically instantly, right? If you hear Jamestown, Virginia, you need to think 1607. Obviously, this class was meant for a lot of test prep, right? It, it gets to the end, and we take a test, and we see how good we are at remembering history. But the first one we learn is Jamestown, Virginia 1607. So this is what we have for Jamestown, Virginia. It was the first English permanent English colony that would actually last. Obviously Roanoke was the first major attempt. To talk about the population of England expanding from 3.5 million to 5 million in between 1580 and 1650. We talk about we talked about that last episode. We talk about what a joint stock company and what it was meant to do, which was raise money for this venture. We talk about the original mission, about what the Virginia company wanted to do, which was find gold. Next question is, what problems did they face, the early settlers of Jamestown? What did they face? They didn't plant enough crops, they didn't have enough food, and there was a lot of disease and malnutrition. And the reasons for this—this is, this is the next part—the reasons we we go through—and this is one of those where we only have to write two of the responses. This is one of those times where the the teacher would ask us, and we would have to respond. And if you read the book, you might get some of these answers. But these were the answers that I wrote down: too busy for looking for gold, lack of knowledge of the land, and relied too much on the local Indians. We talk about John Smith, who took over the colony in 1608 and instituted a military discipline organized the sick and he stated that those who do not work do not eat and then we move on to the 1609 to 1610 starving time that winter starving time where they failed to save enough food for the winter and turned to cannibalizing each other and below that is a primary source written by the house of burgesses in virginia speaking about the cannibalism and the terrible conditions that the settlers were in, in the starving times. We move on to John Rolfe, who married Pocahontas, talked about how he introduced tobacco in order to try to get some profit made for the colony, and how this was the economic salvation of Virginia. Then we talk about the establishment of the House of Burgesses, which was the beginning of representative government in North America. We move on to the headright system, which was how colonists were given 50 acres of land if they covered their own transportation, and 50 more acres for every other person that they brought with them and paid to bring with them. And after this, my reasons for why they did this is one of those response questions. It was to bring people to North America and because they didn't have to pay for the land. And then we move on to indentured servants. When we talked about how in exchange for having their passage paid for, these indentured servants worked for their masters for about four to seven years and were considered property similar to slaves. And approximately 40% of them, two out of every five servants, did not actually finish that term. We talk about the gender ratio, that there were many more men than women, as much as six to one, and that men were considered much more are much better suited to be laborers and were needed in order to plant tobacco. Then the question is asked, why weren't families encouraged to come to the New World? And the responses I wrote down were, the kids couldn't work and used resources, time for the children took time away from the agriculture, and children didn't really have much of a chance to survive. And then we talk about the Anglo-Powhatan Wars of 1610 to 1614, 1622 to 1632, and 1644 to 1646. We will talk about two of these in this podcast. Uh and we talk about why this was happening. And it's because the colonists were taking the land of the Indians because of tobacco. And we move on finally to the low life expectancy of Virginia, which we talk about was because of disease. which was contracted from the swampy salt water and along with conditions of salt poisoning, typhoid, and dysentery, and how the life expectancy at the time was 48. The end of this, uh, we finally get to the point where King James takes over from the Virginia company, the colony, and turns it into a royal charter under direct control of him after scandalous mismanagement by the company. However, by this point, Virginia continued to grow and prosper. And the last bit of this, before we move on to another colony, which we will talk about in another episode, Maryland, is there's a summary. And we go over what did we learn from this part of the class. And the question is, quote, Analyze the factors that enabled Virginia to eventually grow and prosper by the second half of the 17th century. And in what I wrote was tobacco, indentured servitude... Population growth, growth of immunity, learned geography of land, and defeat of the Powhatan Indians. And that is everything we have for Virginia in the AP U.S. history notes. So there's a lot more there, obviously, than before in those other previous episodes. This is the first one which actually has proper notes, but we will have some filling in to do. There's a lot of detail in there that is missing. So let's take off where we left off last episode, around the turn of the century, and begin filling in those missing pages. Last episode, we talked about around the turn of the century, of the 17th century, that is, there was a a battle between minds about the the way that the colonial effort of England would would turn out and what it would look like. We had the Raleigh vision and the hacklight vision, and there were many different people on either side of this battle, but those were the big names. While Queen Elizabeth was pretty much over giving any charters to colonies after 1588 and the defeat of the Spanish Armada, King James I who ascended to the throne in 1603 was much more willing to do so. Now, King James was the king of Scotland. He was King James VI of Scotland for more than 20 years before his ascension. King James was a devout Catholic. We will get more detail into how he treated other religions later as it becomes more pertinent to the story, but just understand now that he was very lenient to Catholics and very harsh on any, any Protestants, mainly the Puritans or, and Separatists. And because he was a Catholic, he made peace very quickly into his reign with Spain, a, the very Catholic Spain, and made friends with them after many years of conflict. So when he was looking at charters, looking at places to settle and how the settlement would be run, he wanted to make sure that the Raleigh vision of the of colonial efforts was not followed, because that was obviously not good for Spain and for the Catholic cause. So instead he sided with the Hacklite vision and gave a charter to the Virginia Company of London, which was started by Hacklight and a few others with the help of what is considered diverse others, which we don't really know exactly who was involved, all of the different people, but we do know it was just a lot of very rich merchants, mostly, that helped fund it from the beginning. Now, this first company was given two different charters, and it was split up with two different missions, one between... 38 degrees and 45 degrees north, and with the caveat that no Christian lived there, obviously the natives were not granted the same rights to the land, and another between 34 degrees and 41 degrees. The Plymouth Company was given the first, and the Virginia Company was given that second charter, but neither of these had exclusive rights over those different areas. It was basically You should land between these two points, and you should land between these two points, right? After that, you figure it out. So the Virginia Company was founded, and some of the prominent names on here were uh, Edward Maria Wingfield, Bartholomew Gosnold, and John Smith. Now John Smith was a character in and of himself. He was a veteran of war, was a war prisoner, in Turkey and somehow escaped from a warship and made his way back to England. All of this was before he turned 26. So he was along on this journey, but he was, you know, an upstart. He was not well liked by the many other people on the, in the company. In order to, you know, make sure that people, that everybody on this journey, the first journey, worked together at least somewhat well, because obviously there was going to be a lot of different opinions and a lot of people fighting, infighting, among the leadership, the Virginia Council was created to act as a governing body. The Virginia Council consisted of eight people. Three of them were those that I just mentioned, Smith, Wingfield, and Gosnold, and along with them was Christopher Newport, John Ratcliffe, John Martin, and George Kendall. And from these, a president would be chosen and the president would get two votes and the rest of them won whenever they came to a vote. And and from the beginning, this was a contentious council as many of them, uh, Wingfield and Newport included, did not want to include John Smith at all in this council. So John Smith, we will talk lots about him. He was a bit of a thorn in everybody's side on the entire journey now three ships set sail from england in february of 1607 the susan constant the godspeed and the discovery the 144 passengers included nobility gentry craftsmen artisans and many common laborers they were all men and this was on purpose in order for them to basically secure an area before they would begin with bringing women and children and there was many different competing goals right So, Hacklite obviously had the goal of setting up a manufactory and starting long-term trade as soon as possible, but many others just wanted to get a profit for the company as soon as possible. They wanted to find pearls and gold, basically. And from the beginning, the Hacklite vision was set aside and didn't actually take hold for a very long time. So, when they landed on April 26, 1607 in Virginia along the Chesapeake Bay, and began exploring, they were trying to find a way to explore inland as, as much as possible to get a, a good sense of what land they were looking at to try to find gold. But they found this very difficult and were attacked by natives almost immediately. And this is described by one of the men on the ship, George Percy. And this is from the book, A Land is God Made at Jamestown and the Birth of America, by historian James Horn. Horn describes the first contact with the natives like this. Quote, Having spent most of the day ashore, exploring along the water side and a little way inland, the men returned to their ships as darkness fell. A group of Indians were waiting for them. Percy described the scene, and now quoting Percy At night, when we were going aboard, there came the savages creeping upon all four, from the hills like bears, with their bows in their mouths charged us very desperately in the faces hurt Captain Gabriel Archer in both his hands and a sailor in two places of the body very dangerous. After they had spent their arrows and felt the sharpness of our shot, they retired into the woods with a great noise and so left us. End quote. After they were back on board, the Virginia Council was revealed. I forgot to mention this. It was not to be revealed until they landed in Virginia, in the New World. And those eight were chosen. Um, Which already brought a lot of contention, not only because the others didn't want Smith to be on it, because Smith was an upstart and actually was uh, charged with mutiny on the way to Virginia, though this likely was just because of a, a spat between a couple men, a couple of the leaders, um, and what uh, and he was released after, after they landed. But regardless, this new council decided that they would move on from this area and become and begin exploring a little bit more and do some more uh surveying missions to find a proper landing spot. They traveled up the James River as far as they could go before they came back and planted a flag in Jamestown Island, claiming it as territory for England. Now Just to stop here for a second, it's important to understand that England, their view of property was different than the natives, obviously, that's that's clear. And it was different from other Europeans as well. So the English felt that any unused land, as soon as you say that it is mine, then it is mine. And until someone comes up and disputes that claim, that they have record of them using it, then... It is your land, and any land that they did not see as actively being used was free for the taking. Though later, later on when they found out that the natives were in fact using the land and they felt that it was theirs, they did write deeds in good faith, at least at the time they felt it was in good faith, in order to buy the land from the natives themselves. They were not purely exploitative from the beginning, though like humans do they try to get the best out of the deal and they thought they did though they did not understand that the natives thought that they were basically just giving them rights to use it as a loan not actually buying it and this obviously would cause major havoc as of right now it's important to just understand that the english truly did feel like they had the land and it was theirs and it was their theirs by right of common law after further missions up the river, they met the Kekotans, the Paspahegs, and the Kiokahonics along the way up the, up the James River um, before they were reached the end of where their ships could go and turned around. And they were actually shocked at the, the stature and dress of the natives that they met on, on these trips. And James Horn writes of one of these encounters in one of these accounts. Quote, the English were impressed by the wearowants of the Keokahannocks, Chopak, who cut a striking figure as he came down to the water's edge at the head of a group of warriors to greet the new arrivals. The chief wore a headdress of, quote, this is quoting one of those English on this trek, deer's hair colored red, end quote, and this is, horn continuing, two long feathers sticking up like a pair of horns and a great plates of copper on either side of his head. Pearls and bird claws set in fine copper hung from his ears and a chain of beads from his neck. His face was painted blue and silver, and his body was covered in crimson dye. But what struck the Englishman most was the chief's demeanor. He, quote, this is quoting George Percy, entertained us in so modest a proud fashion as though we had been a prince of civil government, holding his countenance without laughter or any such ill behavior, End quote. And this is mentioned in 1491 by Charles C. i which I've, I've referenced a lot, that the natives were much more fit, much more lean, much taller, and seemed much healthier than the English. See, the English were pockmarked; they were, you know, gangly; they were short, and were greasy and very had very low hygiene. And the natives were almost opposite of the almost the opposite of this in every single way. And it's it's, it's a very human thing for anybody to kind of if you're in you're in the in group, you're good, and the out group is bad and and so it's it's hard to see the natives thinking of a, of the english as anything other than weak gross stinky weirdos and not gods and and the the chief the the of the this tribe the kiohokahannicks was very conscious and, and understood his position among his people and he he felt that he was the king or prince or whatever, just the same as any Englishman would, if he was granted the same title. After reaching the end of their journey at the junction between the Appomattox River and the James River, where they met the Appomattox themselves, the council uh, chose the Virginia Council chose to settle on a small island in in the bay, which was connected by a small land bridge and about 50 miles away from the coast of the Atlantic. This was chosen to be a good uh, defensive point against both the natives by that land bridge and the Spanish by having a lot of space away from the coast so that they could do their work without any interference. Shortly after this settlement was started, and before much building could be done, further trade was conducted by the English between them and the natives, this time with the nearby Poetan. So the English thought that all of these different native tribes that they have met were actually friendly. They thought that they, you know, could have some sort of trade relations at some point with them. Though they found out that these natives were much more cunning than they had uh, thought originally, and they were attacked once, one night during supper by many of these different tribes. Uh, they were able to defend their position very easily, but they realized that they must fortify this small settlement and cr- started creating what is kind of known as the, this, uh, this fort at Jamestown, which was kind of a triangular small fort. They set to work on trying to defend themselves from not just the natives, but eventually the Spanish, likely. Christopher Newport was, was uh, set to return to England in June of 1607, in order to relay some of the information of the surrounding area and the natives that they met. They saw a lot of opportunity for fishing, farming, and potentially industry, but there was no gold to be found. But this was no matter because this was now Hacklite’s vision. Gold was partially important just to get some trade started to be able to send stuff back to the colony to make it worth having people there but the main focus was farming and industry. So, Newport reported this, and a new voyage was prepared and sent to the colony. However, during this time, the conditions in Virginia started to take their toll on the people living there. By August, the swampy conditions and poor drinking water started to show its its ugly face. Starting on August 6th, death began to ravage Jamestown. James Horne, in his book, A Land as God Made It, lays this out quite well, where he basically quotes a, a report that was written in the colony, basically a ledger of everybody that died. And he writes, quote, Six weeks after Newport sailed for England, the terrible roll call began. And now he's quoting this ledger. And I I will apologize, there is going to be some weird words, weird verbiage in here. This is all quoted as it was written in the ledger, and obviously this is from 400 years ago, so it's going to be a little bit different, and um, bear with me. Quote, the 6th of August, there died John Asby of the Bloody Flux. The 9th day, George Flower of the Swelling. The 10th day died William Brewster, gentleman, of a wound given by the savages, and was buried the 11th day. The fourteenth day, Jerome alacock ancient, died of a wound. The same day, Francis Midwinter, Edward Morris, corporal, died suddenly. End quote. Continuing, Horn writes: quote, On August twenty-second, the colony suffered its greatest loss with the death of Bartholomew Gosnold, perhaps the only man who could have held the fractious leaders together. End quote. So. By the end of September, only half of the 104 were alive. I stated that 144 were on the ship. Only 104 actually stuck around. The rest were sailors. So 104 were alive when they got there. By September, 52 were alive. By the winter, only 40 survived. On September 10th, Wingfield was removed as president by the remaining members of the council and he returned to England and warned that this new government that was created uh, without him in it was driven by bribes and arbitrary punishment. This was all held under under strict secrecy because they did not want people to think of this colony as another failure. They wanted to make sure that, that people wanted to go to America. And during this time, it, it's often speculated that if if the natives had... Attacked At this moment, England might have given up this, this colonial effort here and now. It, it is not known why the natives gave up uh, attacking this, this, the English. Perhaps they saw the ships departing and thought that they were leaving and thought that those that were staying were only there temporarily. It's also likely that disease was running rampant and they didn't really have any defenses against it, and were taking care of that. It's also possible that they did not hate the English as much as they hated each other. And there was likely internal conflict between tribes or intertribal conflict that was more important to them than the English. And this is similar to what happened with the Spanish in Mexico and the and in South America where the native tribes were often pitted against each other, but often just had these rivalries already baked in, where they felt that the English were no match, and these other other tribes were more important to deal with now. Regardless, the colony continued to struggle on, and John Smith began to take over many of the day-to-day activities of the government. He led trade expeditions, often leading to threats of violence for food. And in one of these expeditions, he was actually captured by the uh, Pamunkey. This trip to the Pamunkey would become part of a sort of American legend and even find its way into a Disney movie. During this trip, he and his two companions are surrounded. They are captured and brought to the leader, Opakankanoe. He is saved from execution, though his two companions are not, and eventually they are, he is transported to a new town. Here, he witnesses several ceremonies, is fed and treated well, and even speaks with Opecan Cano himself. One of these conversations was actually Opecan Cano inquiring about how to attack Jamestown. Smith wrote a letter to the colony in order to try to stop this and Try to get him in good graces with the Pamunkey before this happens. Smith lived with the Pamunkey for several weeks and began to gain more and more knowledge of the inhabitants of this land. He was then brought in front of the sachem of the whole of the Poetan Alliance, Wahoon Sonikak. Before his appearance, he took part in a three-day ceremony to determine his intent and was brought to the city, or the small village, of Werowocomoco. Upon arrival to this town, Smith unknowingly assumed a role in a ceremony that was used to show Smith the might of this great empire that he was in. Wahoo and Seneca gave Smith an offer, swear fealty to him, and all of his English companions will be taken in as subordinates to his empire in exchange for food and provisions. Following this was a ritual that is the crux of this American myth where Pocahontas saved John Smith from being executed. After eventually getting back to Jamestown, Smith wrote about this encounter in the third person. Quote Two great stones were brought before Poetin. Poetin was what the English called Wahoon son Then as many as could lay hands on him, him being Smith, dragged him to them, and thereon laid his head and being ready with their clubs to beat out his brains, Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, when in no entreaty could prevail, got his head in her arms and laid her own upon his to save him from death. Now this super dramatic scene is shown in the movie, the Disney movie Pocahontas, though it's unknown if this event actually did occur uh, but if it did, it's likely that this was just part of a ritual or some sort of ceremony in which Pocahontas was just playing her role. And basically, this was a ceremony in which Smith was accepted as a member of the Powhatans by Pocahontas, quote unquote, sacrificing herself to save him. John Smith eventually made his way back to Jamestown after this excursion with the Pamunkey, though he returned alone without those two companions he had left with and was charged with killing his companions, found guilty, and sentenced to death. This was likely more political than actually truthful uh, or thoughtful moral stance that the council had. They still didn't like John Smith. Luckily, at this point, right before his hanging... Newport arrived back from England with a new slew of men, over a hundred men and supplies to help the colony. And these new arrivals began working on houses. Newport also, on his return, suggested that the the English start to communicate more with the natives and begin more uh, expeditions to find gold. And they did actually meet with the potent Sachem, the Potent leader, to try to get some food. In this meeting, Wahoon Sunakak, who was the sachem, negotiated with the English and the English agreed that they would actually be treated as Poetan, as as part of the tribe, if they forced the nearby Monacans and the Pocahontanic to become subjects. In return for this, they would be given food and assurance from the Poetan that they would not Kill the English. While this this expedition and this trade agreement allowed for the English to get some food for uh, the colony in order to you know sustain it, Newport wanted something more. He wanted information on gold, and his insistence on this led to basically gold fever taking over the colony, and most of the labor that was in Jamestown instead of going to building houses or, or fortifying the defenses or farming even, nothing like that. He went to finding gold. John Smith felt that this was wrong and, and it's it's not really it's not really well known whether or not he's being truthful. He might have also wanted to find gold, but wanted the glory of it for himself rather than any actual objection to the the act of finding gold. But he was very opposed to Newport's new found gold fever. Despite this, Smith took a journey upriver to find gold. Though he did not find gold, he did find the vast natural resources and the endless groves of fruits and and, and trees that were created by the natives, as we talked about, and, and saw that that was just as good as gold. And along the way, he was able to find more information about the surrounding area, and actually was able to meet with some natives that had information of these great large oceans to the west, as we now know, the Great Lakes. Upon returning from all of these different journeys, John Smith was voted as president of the council and began to re- organize the colony as it had been embroiled in major conflicts with some Some wanting to basically become tyrants over the entire colony and want, and palaces built for them while others wanted to just find gold and this is all with all of this death and destruction surrounding them and smith felt that he had to take charge and it was also realized that these settlers were not great laborers So if we think back, if we remember back, most of these people coming to Jamestown, to Virginia, were gentry. They were rich people who never really had to work on their own. Some of them were artisans and and carpenters and things like that. But still, that does not help you build a house. It does not help you plant plant a garden. There were very few actual laborers that came over. So they did not plant any food. They did not have any actual crops. There was some trade with the nearby natives, but not enough to sustain them. And basically the only food that they had were those provisions that were brought by Newport every single time he came back, about every six months or so. And eventually the Poetin Sachem Wahoo Sunakak, refused to give any food. And what they had to do in order to get this food from other places was basically give away all of their supplies. Every single bit of what they had brought other than food in the trip was sold to natives for corn, mostly, and other food. They did not understand that this area that they were in was a grove of wild berries and fruit and that... All of this was made for people to be able to live off of the land. There was not a lot of hunting here. It was mostly farming and, and, uh, and gathering from the groves that were created. But the, the English did not know that, and they were not farming. They were completely ignorant of farming. Now, King James eventually got word of all of this terrible discontent and all of these terrible conditions in Jamestown and the complete lack of any organization and he sent Thomas West, the third Baron Delaware, and Thomas Gates to reinforce the colony. And he was they were told to move the capital down from where it is not where it was in the Jamestown Island down to where Roanoke had been placed. There was also a, a an order to kill all Poetin that they found. And take Wahoo Sunacock, and turn him into a subject of the English. And this was all done in England, all of these different rules. All of this, this entire plan was built in England and John Smith had no idea that they were coming. And there's a, another strange coincidence that occurs when this ship arrives. See, the Spanish knew of, of the English and a man named Pedro de Zuniga, reported to King Felipe III that this colony existed and that it was likely a base for piracy. So they planned a a an attack on Jamestown, but they arrived the day after this new ship with Thomas West and Thomas Gates arrived and were attacked by this new ship and were successfully driven away. So if they had come just two days earlier, there's no doubt that the spanish ship would have completely destroyed jamestown but it did not and another one of those weird coincidences that leads to where we are today if it had not been for that english ship showing up that day we may be speaking a different language here so when the mary and john arrived in may 1609 to relay that there was several ships coming with new leadership john smith was shocked a fleet of eight ships, left England in June 1609, bound for Jamestown. About 500 settlers were on there and supplies to feed all of them. The sea venture was the flagship carrying Gates, George Summers, William Strakey, John Rolfe, and Stephen Hopkins. During this journey, the caravan ran into a hurricane about a week away from the coast this storm hammered the ships, and all but the sea venture were able to make it through the storm. The flagship began to take water, and just before all hope was lost, it crashed into the reefs of Bermuda. The rest of the ships arrived in Jamestown by the middle of August, heavily damaged and having lost dozens of people, but they were able to make it so and I mentioned that the sea venture had Thomas Gates on on board that was one of those leaders. So when the other seven arrive in Jamestown, Smith decides that, well, until Gates gets here, I'm still the president. Now, Smith directed these new settlers that did arrive, about 200 of those that did arrive, to move north and south from Jamestown to try and settle other places. And expeditions were sent, and despite what Smith wanted, these men decided to destroy villages in order to start their own forts. And it's it's possible that Smith had actually orchestrated these different things to happen to basically send these people out with on this mission, knowing that they would kill natives in order to make it seem like Smith was the only one that could that could liaison with with the Indians. Regardless of as dozens of of natives were dead, and also and probably just as many English were dead on these in- expeditions. And he had begun to overestimate his authority and uh, was sent back to England before any more damage could be done. And it's important to remember that at this point, the sea venture was considered completely lost. And the English were starting to basically lose hope in this colony and taking Smith out to try to figure out a way to get any more control over it without this upstart, you know. Throwing a wrench in their plans, they had to do anything they could. These English attacks on these villages that were happening continued after Smith was gone, and retaliation by the Poetin meant more English were killed, and it kept going back and forth. And all of these different forts that were built up, uh, attempted to be started uh, outside of Jamestown, were abandoned, and everyone made their way back to Jamestown. And this was now without any food or provisions from any of these ships left over. More trade was attempted, but this led nowhere, and death and desertion rose sharply during this winter. And this winter is what has become known as the starving time in Jamestown. The lack of provisions, the lack of trade, and then a a siege that was conducted by the poetin led to over 160 people 160 English dying, leaving about 10% of the entire population that was brought by this fleet left over. And this, this starving time led to some of the most depraved and sinister events to unfold in Jamestown. There was no food left except for human flesh, and many turned to cannibalism. James Horan writes about this in A Land As God Made It, and he writes about George Percy's recount of the starving time. And there's going to be a lot of quotes from George Percy in here. I I will do my best to stop at them, so if this gets a little bit clunky, I might just have to revise it. But here we go. Quote, As famine became etched ghastly and pale in every face, Percy recalled, nothing was spared to maintain life. Starving settlers dug up dead corpses out of graves and ate them. Others licked up the blood which had fallen from their weak fellows. Some of the colonists who died in their beds or were killed seeking relief beyond the palisade were taken up and eaten by those who found their bodies. Neither were the dead the only victims of cannibalism. The famished looked hungrily on those alive who still had meat on their bones. End quote. And there is one moment that is written about by John Smith himself. He writes, quote, One of our colony murdered his wife, ripped the child out of her womb, and threw it into the river. After this, he chopped the mother into pieces and salted her for his food, which wasn't discovered until he'd eaten part of her. For this cruel and inhumane act, I adjudged him to be executed." So that was just one person, but this was not just him. Cannibalism took over the colony before John Smith left, and had this been known prior to more expeditions, England probably would not have continued this on. Those that survived saw in 1610 the survivors of the Sea Venture arrive on two ships. These ships were built in Bermuda, those survivors and the 60 skeletal settlers that greeted them in jamestown were just as much of a shock those in the sea venture were actually expecting to be greeted with you know hundreds of settlers and to be seen not as saviors potential saviors but as just uh, a story of resilience of surviving from this island And among them was Thomas Gates, who thought he would be coming to take over a successful colony. But what he found was the colony of what seemingly was a cannibalistic society. When Thomas Gates arrived, he decided that this would not do. He decided that they needed to move this colony and head up north to Newfoundland. But luckily for the colony... Thomas West was just arriving in the Chesapeake. And this fleet brought ample provisions, and also a new government that would be run like a military to completely overturn this colony. Strict rules were enforced, often with punishments of death and whipping, and work was organized, and the fort was rebuilt. So Thomas West, also known as the 3rd Baron Delaware, had a mission on top of just restoring order in the colony. He was sent to convert the natives peacefully and bring them under the English crown. He started by renegotiating with Wahoo and Sunukok for captured settlers and goods, but was unsuccessful. And after one of these expeditions, where one of his envoys was killed, he changed his tune, and all-out war broke out between the English and nearly every single surrounding Indian nation. The reign of terror that occurred was an amplification of the previous violent encounters, with whole, whole villages burned, sachems were captured and executed, and no one was spared. This was total war. The natives were not fools, though. They were able to lure in many English and, and kill them, and, and were able to destroy these expeditions very often, usually by offering great feasts to the English because they knew that they were starving. And despite all this effort to renegotiate and to try to bring stability to the colony, disease continued to ravage the settlers, killing nearly a third. This was usually plague or smallpox brought along with them to the colony by the ships. Delaware was one of those infected, and he was actually sent back to England to recover and to detail the conditions for the company leadership. Though Delaware was beaten by Thomas Gates, who brought back the good news of his survival and the the new found government that could bring peace and prosperity back to Jamestown. So when he got there, he the uh, Delaware found the company already recommitted to the colony, but there was one condition. They needed to leave Jamestown. Thomas Dale was sent by the company in order to, to do just that, and establish order in the colony and start moving upriver. More expeditions were pushed, and peace was eventually made with the Poetans. Further peace was made with the Chickahomines, which were closer to the English and allowed for them to have some freedom to plant and grow the colony. The marriage between Pocahontas and John Rolfe solidified this new peace that was reached and marked a new phase in this colonial venture. And it's possible that by this point the natives just didn't have much fighting force left. See, we already know that disease was ravaging them, and the continuous stream of, of English, despite the fact that they were dying, just felt overwhelming. And at some point, the natives decided that they would rather help them than continue fighting and losing their own, because they're probably going to die out on their own anyway. Unfortunately for the natives, something else would change the complexion of Jamestown, and that was tobacco. John Rolfe was, was experimenting with different combinations of Spanish and Indian tobacco and found a suitable plant for the English in, in Virginia, though it did not catch on right away because the king hated tobacco, and the company left this behind for a little while. This newfound piece allowed for England to start selling this new colony and the company to start marketing to private investors and attract them to Virginia. They offered thousands of acres of, of property, and for these rich farmers to be able to come over with their own servants and their own farmers to make a profit. This also allowed small plots to be given to many to bolster subsistence farming and increase the yield of food tremendously. The abundance of natural resources, mainly trees that surrounded them, allowed for much-needed repairs to commence and new settlers to arrive. And despite the company's wishes and the king's wishes, Tobacco planting spread like wildfire throughout the town. And due to all this prosperity over the next few years, Jamestown was kind of losing its focus in the English eyes and was just one of many different towns in the larger colony of Virginia. This crash landing in Bermuda kind of gives its own little small story and and kind of gives a, a microcosm a little bit of the struggles that were faced in all of the colonies from the very beginning. So the the new governor that was supposed to be taking over as soon as he reached Jamestown was Thomas Gates. However, because they were not in Jamestown, the sailors did not think that he had the right to rule, so to speak. So the sailors believed that they actually were under the command of the Admiral George Summers. And this led to a full-blown revolt in September 1609. These sailors were all apprehended, though, and and rather than being sentenced to death, as was very customary uh, to, you know, treasonous activities, they were sent to the island that they were planning to escape to, and shortly thereafter, they were begging to be brought back. There was a second mutiny as well, started by Stephen Hopkins, and Stephen Hopkins will be a, you know, side character that we will see recur uh, several times in this story. But he supposedly, this is disputed, started a second mutiny in January of 1610. William Strakey was uh, on this journey, and he would document most of what happened on Bermuda. And he recalls that, quote, Hopkins alleged substantial arguments, both civil and divine, that it was no breach of honesty, conscience, or religion to decline from the obedience of the governor or to refuse to go any further led by Gates' authority, since the authority ceased when the wreck was committed, and with it they were all then freed from the government of any man. And for a matter of conscience, it was not unknown to the meanest that we were only bound each one to provide for himself and his own family." End quote. Now at the time, this was treasonous behavior. This was mutinous behavior, and he was sentenced to death, though this was eventually rescinded. And during this whole time, the whole crew was working to rebuild small ships in order to make their way back all the way to uh, Jamestown. And after nine months, they would finally finish these two ships and set sail for Virginia. I stated that William Strakey. Documented most of this trip. And this island, Bermuda, would gain a reputation as a horrid place to find yourself. And this documentation of this event likely led to Shakespeare writing a story called The Tempest. And if you've read that story, it's a little bit, uh, it's a comedy, so it's not quite uh, true to life, but it does have some parallels to what happened on Bermuda. All of the retaliations in this cycle of continuous violence that occurred from about 1609 to 1611 is what is called the First Anglo-Poetan War. Obviously, having first in the name means that there will be more of these, and we will get to those as they come. So after all of the hardship and this newfound reliance on tobacco... The colony began to stabilize a bit, and more towns began to form outside of Jamestown itself, including Henrico, which was up the James River. In 1618, this colony was split into four different cities, Elizabeth City, James City, Charles City, and Henrico. Land was allotted to different functions, including 10,000 acres were set aside for a university, and all of those that were that lived in Virginia prior to 1618, when all of these cities were created, were granted 100 acres each. And all of those newcomers were granted 50 acres. So this was what became known as the headright system. And it actually, this 100 acres versus 50 acres, actually created a rift between what were called the old planters, which were those before 1618, and the new planters. At the beginning of this episode, I laid out, and I think previously, I laid out that the economic situation in England was dire, and people were extremely poor during this century. In order for colonists and settlers to get to the new colony, given these extremely harsh economic conditions, were for people to pay for them. So if someone was paid to come to Jamestown, to Virginia, they did not get the land themselves. Their masters got that land, that 50 acres, and they were then under the uh, service. They were indentured servants to those masters for a, a series of years, sometimes four, sometimes seven, and would eventually, after the fact, after all of that, become free and get their own land. Along with indentured servants, slaves were also brought to Virginia starting in 1619 though we will cover slavery and indentured servitude to in more depth in a later episode I just want to get that out there to make sure that that is part of this we need to understand that most of the people living in Jamestown at the time or in, in Virginia at the time were indentured servants this new partition of land also brought with it to a, a new form of government with two councils one representing the company, the Virginia Company, and one representing the people. In this arrangement, the colony was not independent. Rather, the company was still in control of enforcement. However, the company was now beholden to the needs of the settlers rather than just profits. This change was driven largely by Edwin Sandis, who also began recruiting more heavily, asking pilgrims who were now living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands to join the colony. And he actually did succeed, but they did not land in Virginia. They actually landed far north of Virginia in Plymouth, which we will get to. He continued to recruit religious dissidents, including Puritans, along with more tradesmen and even felons. And in, And by 1621, 50 ships had, ac- had arrived carrying about 3,750 settlers. Many of those were indentured servants. There were also Reports of destitute children also taken forcibly to Virginia in hopes to help bring them up in some sort of trade. Even by 1618, the English were failing to supply themselves with food. In his book, American Slavery, American Freedom, Edmund S. Morgan explains that the amount of corn that would be necessary to feed the colonies would be a fraction of the time that would be spent farming overall. He postulates that the, the English did not grow corn because the natives grew corn, and they did not see themselves as low, low enough to do so. Quote, the very fact that the Indians did grow corn may be one more reason why the colonists did not, for the Indians presented a challenge that Englishmen were not prepared to meet a challenge to their image of themselves, to their self-esteem, to their conviction of their own superiority over foreigners, and especially over barbarous foreigners like the Irish and the Indians, End quote. See, the Indians had a very clever method of farming that would require very little maintenance and little farming overall in order to feed a single person. A single acre could feed one person if it was a variety of crops being planted within that acre. They also used the vast groves of trees that supplied many of the fruits and berries that they also fed on. But the English felt that this was below them. See, a lot of them were also of the nobility class, of the gentry, so they did not think that they were meant to farm. But as was seen throughout this period, it was disastrous for them. And the introduction of tobacco just made this worse. See the new labor force was not used mostly to supply food, though there were some that you know that grew wheat and and corn and also raised livestock and, and fished. but the main export and the main crop that was farmed was tobacco. And the mass migration that was started in 19, in 1621, with those 3,000-plus settlers, included about 95% indentured servants. Most of them were between 15 and 35 years old, and at this point, women were outnumbered 7 to 1. The number of settlements grew from 6 to 24 in, over, in about 4 years, and with this a rapid expansion, the exploitation of labor only expanded even further. And indentured servants were at this point being sold just like slaves would be between people. More often they were rented, so to speak, and they were, they were treated terribly. And James Horn in A Land As God Made It, writes about some of the, the experiences that these servants were facing. As one example, we take Richard Freethorn who was a servant at Martin's Hundred. I am in a most miserable and pitiful case, for want of meat and want of clothes. Since I came out of the ship, I never ate anything but peas and loblolly, which is basically just ground oats in water. He continued, If you love or respect me as your child, release me from this bondage and save my life. He begged, end quote. Uh, This was quoted from a letter that he sent begging his mother and father. James Horn continues on this note, quote, "Inadequate provisions and squalid shipboard conditions so weakened passengers that mortality among servants after their arrival reached epidemic proportions, the major killers being scurvy and the bloody flux." A story circulating in Plymouth in the spring of 1620 reported that 900 men had died in the previous 12 months, and quoting one of those that is relaying the story, quote, "and that the people were used with more slavery than if they were under the Turk." End quote. Given these conditions, about 75% of all incoming servants died within a year of arriving in Virginia. In this, this period of time, that first year was called a seasoning. Basically, the if they made it past this first year, then they would make it for much longer, though 75% of them did not make it past that first year. And this new influx of settlers also brought with it a renewed hope that the Poetans would be able to be converted and brought into English society. But they did not realize that when Opakankano replaced Wahusunikak, also known as Poetin, after his death in 1618, it was already too far gone. No matter what they did now did not matter. By this point, the English had encroached on much of the land of the Appomattox, the Poetin, the Chickahomines, the Paspahegs, and the Kiokahannocks and many more. And despite appearances, an initial push by the natives for natives to be allowed to work alongside the English was not a peacetime maneuver. It was actually part of an infiltration plot. Now, to anyone watching what was happening in the native lands, this would have been obvious. But the English leadership turned a blind eye. They did not realize, and I think probably out of their misunderstanding of how smart and, and capable the natives were, they still did think that they were lesser than themselves. As they thought the Irish were lesser than themselves, the English felt that they were above everybody else. If we will think back to Richard Hacklight, they were imperialists through and through. One quick note that I do want to make sure I address here is this idea of superiority of the English. Now, obviously, over time, this will eventually work its way into a, a, a racial superiority rather than just a cultural or, or imperialistic superiority. But at this point in the story, in the early 17th century, the English were very much more obsessed about being English than being white. See, they hated the Spanish all the same, and the Spanish were no more or less white, maybe maybe a shade darker, but not by much. See, the, the English were brutal to anybody that was not English, and that included those that looked similar to them, including the Scottish and, the most famously, the Irish in his book, Before the Revolution, America's Ancient Pasts, Daniel K. Richter writes that, quote, Ireland was to England's conquistadors what Granada and the Canaries were to Spain's. England's equivalent of the Reconquista stretched back to the days of the Norman invasions, which had created the English Pale of Settlement in the central and eastern portion of the island. End quote. And this Pale was actually the the source for beyond the pale, which meant outside of civilized society, right? As barbaric, backwards, and outside of civility, which the English felt the Celts were. And there were many, many people who felt that the Irish were less than human. For instance, Walter Raleigh's associate Barnaby Rich stated that the Gaelic people, quote, live like beasts, void of law and all good order, and that they were more uncivil, more uncleanly, more barbarous, and more brutish in their customs and demeanors than in any other part of the world that is known, quote. And they believed, many of these similar thinking people believed, such as uh, another contemporary Peter Carew, that, quote, the suppressing and reforming of the loose, barbarous, and most wicked life of that savage nation, end quote, was necessary to promote English life. So this belief of English superiority did not have a racial component when the English came to the New World. It was very much just an imperialistic and colonial vision of the world that the English had the right to take over everybody. And unless you worked with them, you were active enemies of this mission. So when on March 22nd, 1622, when a group of natives entered the English settlements and took up English arms and killed everyone they could, they were in shock. The long game that had been played by Poetin leadership had worked, and the settlers were caught completely off guard. In the end, 300 to 500 settlers were killed in the Virginia Massacre before a defensive force could be risen. Like had been done before to the natives, all of the English crops, livestock, houses, and storage were destroyed. Bodies were mutilated and beheaded, and those attacks consolidated the colonists to a few very well-protected small settlements. This attack obviously led to retribution and a renewed effort for revenge immediately grasped the company and even reached the king himself who authorized a delivery of hundreds of weapons settlers were recruited to replace the fallen the conversion attempts that the Na- that the english were attempting at this point were completely abandoned and they condemned the natives as untrustworthy and evil the replacement of this policy was to kill drive out or enslave every single Indian in the region. This new outlook gave credibility to the English, gave credibility in their eyes that this land was theirs now, and they would not give it up. And it can be seen, this change in the view of the natives, can be seen in people's writings. For instance, Reverend Samuel Purchase, who had been an admirer of Pocahontas, summed up his newfound hatred of the natives. In James Horne's A Land as God Made It, he has Purchase's writing, quote, prior to sixteen twenty two, he wrote, This is Purchase, quote, Temperance and Justice had before kissed each other and seemed to bless the cohabitations of English and Indians in Virginia, end quote. Uh, Horn continues, But by this last butchery, the poetans had revealed themselves, quote, more brutish than the beasts they hunt, more wild and unmanly than the unmanned wild country, which they range rather than inhabit, end quote. Horn continues a little bit here saying basically that Purchase believed that the natives were not people of any nation. They were not civilized. They were backwards and 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 savages and this is not just out of the name that they like to call them this is out of hatred and he says that purchase wrote that they were borderers and that they were quote outlaws of humanity this is in contrast for just a couple of years ago they were the natives and the english were beginning to seem to live more harmoniously and to trade and trained each other's skills such as farming and shooting. But this was all over now. There was no going back. So this battle between the English and the natives, the nearby natives, continued until there was a battle in 1624 that seems to mark a turning point. In July, a Pamunkey force of soldiers, of, of warriors, faced off with an English band, and the English won decisively, which marked the end of basically any possibility to expel the English. The English were far too strong for any small, any singular tribe to to put an end to them. And this was partially a a technological issue. Though there is something to be made uh, clear here: the English did use many guns. They had a lot of flintlocks and before them matchlocks, but those were very unreliable and extremely extremely inaccurate and at this point there were more bows sent to the new world than guns at the very beginning of the colonial effort they had a very strong tradition of archery in england and there was a a component of them using it as a a means to basically stand above the rest because they were slightly better than many in, in many others in europe and to some, this this usage of bows by the natives was not so much a mark of primitive technology, but actually a mark that the, the English were on the right track because they were doing what the ancient Romans did in their conquest of the British Isles. See, the British have a long history of archery, and this marks basically that that these natives were basically their ancient ancestors, and the English were, were duty-bound to bring them back into the fold. But to not digress too far, this Second Anglo-Poetan War would continue for eight more years after this battle, but there wasn't much as much fighting. It was a lot of small skirmishes, a lot of burning of villages, and the like. However, this war was taking a toll on the colony itself. The conditions of the colony dwindled continuously, with death and famine constantly present. George Sandys wrote a general indictment of the colony, the company's policies, and the overall leadership in both, and sent it to the king. These letters would mark the collapse of the Virginia Company when they were read by the English Royal Commission, and after a hefty investigation, the colony was stripped from company rule the company was dissolved, and Virginia became a royal colony. This came right at the end of the reign of King James I and the ascension of King Charles I, which did throw this new-found authority into flux for a little bit, but Charles reaffirmed that Virginia would remain under the protection of the crown forever. This transfer of power merely just changed the leadership. And the, the population was able to eventually recover back to its previous levels, and small cities began to reform. Tobacco was soon the sole major export, as this, the mixed economy method that Hacklite envisioned was failing to take root, and then the agrarian single crop had proven to be much more successful. All Poetans were excised from the colony, except for those that were used as slaves, and religious conversion of nearby natives was stopped altogether. Not only was the hacklite manufactory of the New World put to an end, the Christian imperial dream was also over. I think the where I'm going to end this off is just to give an overview of just how terrible this was for both the Europeans and the natives, this colony existing as it was from 1607 to about 1630, and may- maybe slightly before that, but but, it, it needs to be understood. For, for instance, in his book American Colonies, historian Alan Taylor lays out the death toll of the English like this, quote, between 1607 and 1622, the Virginia Company transported some 10,000 people to the colony, but only 20% were still alive there in 1622. An English critic belatedly remarked quote, Instead of a plantation, Virginia will shortly get the name of a slaughterhouse. End quote. Now, we saw that very obviously in the beginning of this story, with the terrible lack of farming and the several starving times, but this would continue. The endemic death that the Europeans faced, the English faced, in Virginia, would continue for a long time. And even into up until 1650, there were only about 13,000 people in the colony. And even during the boom time, after the war with the Poetin ended, and the Poetin gave up a vast concession of land, and and the population by 1650 rose to 13,000, the mortality rate remained around 25% until then. But as terrible as it was for the English, it was far more terrible for the natives. Between 1607 and 1669, which is farther into this story, obviously, than we ended off, but we'll just use these numbers because they're given to me right here. Uh, Alan Taylor in American Colonies writes, quote, disease and war reduced the Virginia Algonquins from 24,000 in 1607 to only 2,000 by 1669. Losing almost all of their lands, the survivors became confined to small reservations surrounded by colonial settlements. Restricting the surviving Indians as a security risk Virginia law invited landholders to shoot any native caught trespassing on their plantations. The law showed far less concern for the Indian cornfields invaded by colonial livestock, quote. From about 1624 onward, it's pretty clear that, that the colony had reached a tipping point. 1624, and, and more likely later on, that's around 1632, when the Second Anglo-Poetan War was officially ended, there was a, a, a turning point with these colliding cultures and, and, and basically a, a point of no return at this precipice where the English began a massive, massive emigration effort to recoup all of these deaths that they were facing in Virginia and extract as much tobacco as possible at the expense of of not only their own people, but more massively the the lives of the natives. During the 1630s and 1640s, about 16,000 people came to the colony, and that would more than double over the next two decades. So by 1670, there are 41,000 people in the colony. The English dream of getting the, the nice gentle indians the nice gentle natives to work with the english and become part of the english empire was put to an end and a new vision where tobacco is the gold of virginia had taken hold and this was a feature of many colonial efforts in the new world up until this point we'll talk about this more in the slavery Episode, But the Caribbean was completely engulfed by the growing of sugar. Gold was replaced with sugar in most of the Caribbean islands. And the same was done in Virginia, but with tobacco. And this massive new growing project required also a massive amount of labor. Originally, at this point, it was mostly indentured servitude. But the 1630s also was a turning point in which African slaves taken from West Africa slowly began to outnumber the number of indentured servants from England and Europe in general. And the more profit that was gained by these tobacco plantations and the more people that that rich benefactors could bring over the contrast between the haves and the have-nots continue to grow and grow and grow. We'll see by the end of this season where this would lead. It will lead to lots of loss of life but more importantly and more substantially, it will lead to the end of many humans' right to life and liberty itself.
0: My People are hurting your child. People are you hear what